The creator of the Dorito passed away this past week. Cool Ranch Dorito fans will bemoan the passing of Arch West, who brought the world nacho cheese and Cool Ranch. Fun fact, Doritos sound similar to the Spanish words Doridado, which means little gold. Scientists at CERN Laboratory have claimed to have clocked a burst of neutrinos, incredibly small subatomic particles, exceeding the speed of light. If true, this could potentially be the most significant discovery in the world of physics in the past 100 years. The speed of light, which was set as a cosmic constant in 1905 by Albert Einstein, was beaten by these neutrinos by about 60 nanoseconds, faster by 0.0025%. One CERN scientist said, if this is true, then we truly haven't understood anything about anything. Neutrinos are among the weirdest denizens of the quantum subatomic world. Once thought to be massless and to travel the speed of light, they can sail through walls and planets like wind through a screen door. The News and Observer reports that within a year, new triangle phones will get a new area code, 984. The change comes as a result of booming population in the area and the proliferation of cell phones. Once the area code is added, which could happen later this year, all local calls will require a 10-digit dialing, as is now the practice in Charlotte and other parts of the country. Only new numbers will be assigned 984 codes. In a potentially massive breakthrough, scientists have found a way to disarm the AIDS virus in research that could lead to a vaccine. Researchers have discovered that if they can eliminate a cholesterol membrane surrounding the virus, HIV cannot disrupt communication among disease-fighting cells, and the immune system returns to normal. Scientists have discovered that HIV needs cholesterol, which it picks up from the first immune cells it infects, to keep the virus's outer membrane fluid. That allows it to communicate with and disrupt the body's natural immune system. Has Egypt's revolution become a military coup? Some are fearing the worst for the embattled nation, which only recently gained its freedom from the tyrannical Hosni Mubarak. Crowds of the same protesters that demanded Mubarak's ousting cheered as their army said it would steer their nation toward a free democratic system. Seven months later, however, many Egyptians are finding that little has changed. As the so-called Supreme Council of the Armed Forces increasingly cements, and in some cases flaunts, its firm grip on power, the revolution that inspired a region is beginning to look more like an old-fashioned military coup. Egypt's police chief even announced this month that security forces would use live ammunition on protesters thought to be illegally entering government buildings. Members of Britain's Liberal Democratic Party overwhelmingly adopted a resolution Sunday supporting the decriminalization of drug possession and the regulated distribution of marijuana and calling for an impact assessment of the 1971 Misuse of Drug Act that would provide a venue for considering decriminalization and controlled marijuana sales. The resolution calls for an independent panel to properly evaluate economically and scientifically the present legal framework for dealing with drugs in the United Kingdom. Citing the Portuguese decriminalization model, the resolution called for the consideration of reform so that possession of any controlled drug for personal use would not be a criminal offense, or that possessions would be prohibited but should cause police officers to issue citations for individuals to appear before panels tasked with determining appropriate education, health, or social intervention. King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia announced a cautious reform which would allow women the right to vote and stand for election. The move has been welcomed as a cultural shift in conservative Islamic society, but will not take effect until 2015. Many commentators in Saudi Arabia are saying that broader change is still needed. Online activists have hacked into official websites of seven major Syrian cities and several government departments as security forces continue 
a crackdown on anti-government protests across the country. Activist groups Anonymous and Revolusec claimed responsibility on Monday for the operation, leaving their mark on sites such as the Ministry of Transport and the Ministry of Culture. Activists replaced the official sites with caricatures of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and a message saying, Don't let Bashar monitor you online, along with tips on how to avoid detection by Syria's online intelligence. And in soccer news, Manchester United had a draw against Stoke, with former England frontman Peter Crouch finding the back of the net for Stoke, and Nani putting away Manchester United's only goal. Manchester City defeated Everton 2-0, with Mario Balotelli and James Milner scoring on the occasion. Chelsea had a good time against Swansea, Fernando Torres scoring, Ramirez netting two, and Drawba getting on the score sheet as well. The real buzz came from Fernando Torres being sent off with a red card in the 39th minute, though it didn't seem to slow down Chelsea from easing to victory. Liverpool defeated Wolverhampton 2-1, Roger Johnson netting an own goal against the Wolves, Luis Suarez picking up Liverpool's other goal to secure the side to victory. Arsenal, finding themselves in a poor form recently, managed to handily see off Bolton 3-0, Robin Van Persie netting two, and Alex Song finishing off the game with a goal in the 89th minute. And lastly, Newcastle United had an incredible home showing against Blackburn, with striker Dembamba netting a hat-trick for the Magpies. Newcastle continue their incredible form, finding themselves securely in fourth place, having not lost in their opening six games. Simply amazing. For Eye on the Triangle News, I'm Matt Gardner. Unless you've been living under a rock, chances are good last week you noticed what appeared to be a shantytown pop up in the middle of the brickyard. Last week was Shackathon, and no, it's not a celebration of Shaquille O'Neal, as a friend of mine suggested. It's a yearly event where students representing different organizations around campus construct shacks and live in them for a week. It's almost impossible to miss them, because they literally camp out in the middle of the brickyard. It's a unique experience where all different kinds of students representing different organizations throughout campus come together for the shared experience of sitting in a shack. And it's all to raise money for Habitat for Humanity. I spent Wednesday night amongst the shacks, just absorbing the microcosm of student life that is the Shackathon. Coming upon the brickyard, one cannot help but notice the colorful collection of huts and the distinct ways the individual shacks are constructed. No two shacks are alike, yet none seem out of place. It is easy to spot the shacks built by engineers and management majors, and those built by English and political science majors. Some shacks are built symmetrically, with gentle sloping roofs and proportional doorways. A few even had front porches. Others were little more than a collection of tarps and garbage bags built around a bamboo frame. Out in front of these shacks on a cloudy evening last Wednesday, students could be found doing all kinds of activities. Some were skateboarding, while others did homework. Some picked at guitars, while others played cornhole. group of skateboarders took turns doing tricks off a small wooden ramp they had erected in front of the NC Skate Shack, like so many surfers in formation for a wave that never moves. 
A couple of the skaters got into an argument when one threw the other's skateboard after he'd started too soon after the skater in front of him. A couple of dirty words were exchanged, but that's all. There wasn't much to break the peace on Wednesday night. Elsewhere, a couple of students played cornhole in the fading light as dark clouds began to gather off to the west. It was only a matter of time before it began to rain, but nobody was worried about that. People just sat around, talking animatedly, playing games or singing. Someone had even brought a dog. Someone was holding a costume contest among the different shacks. I saw Aladdin and a couple of Jasmines, Belle from Beauty and the Beast, and what looked like an ordinary student wrapped in a blanket. So you in the contest? Yeah, I'm in the contest. What are you supposed to be? I'm Stu the Super Jew. Very nice. Yeah, I can also be Disco Stu the Super Jew. So. Stu the Jew? Disco Stu the Super Jew, man. Disco Stu the Super Jew. Finally, it was time for the contest. The participants introduced themselves and were judged by the crowd on who had the best costume. And since each participant represented a particular shack, people for the most part voted for whoever was representing them. So, um, if you want to say what character you are, and then we'll go through and each character, and you can raise your hand if you want to vote for them. Okay. All right, so Jasmine and Aladdin, raise your hand if you want to vote for them. I count 275. <laughs> the contest was easily won by the Jasmine and Aladdin team. But unfortunately for everyone out on the brickyard, the storm had finally caught up and was ready to begin at any moment. Wait, what's up? So you can leave your shack as of right now and go to the library. If you would like, you can stay in your shack. If a warning is issued, there's no warning issued right now. If a warning is issued, you will have to leave your shack. And everyone needs to be back in their shacks by 9 o'clock. Not long after, it started raining, which then turned into a torrential downpour. Anyone outside in the shacks had to seek shelter inside, which unfortunately meant all activities planned for that night had to be canceled or postponed. Which is a shame, since the brickyard is reputed to be quite an interesting place in the dead of night. For On the Triangle, I'm Jake Langlois, 88.1 WKNC. Many people are familiar with the Special Olympics and its athletic events. But this weekend in downtown Raleigh, the organization is holding an event called Over the Edge. And I'm talking to Desiree Froshog, a participant in going over the edge, rappelling over the Wachovia Capital Center 32 stories high. So Desiree, how did you hear about Over the Edge? Uh, last year was the first year that they did Over the Edge in Raleigh. And I happened to be in Raleigh when it was happening, and I saw a crowd of people standing at the base of the Wachovia building and could not figure out for the life of me what they were looking at. And then finally I see this little teeny person at the top of the building rappelling down, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. So I actually got to see it happen last year, and I asked somebody what the event was, and they said over the edge. And so I proceeded to do the research and get myself involved. What exactly does getting involved entail? Uh, So we have a $1,000 entry criteria. And so I just uh, ended up emailing the appropriate personnel, and they got me signed up. So I've just, over the past nine months, have been raising the $1,000 entry fee. And uh, I think that's it. Just show up and get going. So what are you expecting from this? You're going to be 30 stories above the ground on the Wachovia building in downtown Raleigh. 
Have you ever experienced anything like this before? No, definitely not. Um, I actually recently went uh, skydiving, and I'm more nervous about this than I am skydiving because it's not a split-second moment where you just jump out of the plane. It's the actual conscious decision about shifting your weight from, you know, being on top of your feet to the weight on a little teeny rope, 32 stories tall, so, or high, I should say. And so um, I'm definitely very nervous about that, and I've never experienced anything like this. So it should be an adventure, that's for sure. Yeah, so with skydiving, you know, you jump out of a plane, open up the parachute, and everything is good to go. But with rappelling, you have a little more control. So how do you feel about going into this? Uh, basically, you're in control of going down this building. I believe that, you know, there's a professional team that kind of handles and will help me actually put my weight onto the rope. And from, you know, the top of the building all the way down would be something that I control at my own pace. Um, Given that information, though, obviously we are, like, we have scheduled times, and so there will be somebody before me and somebody after me. So um, I think that uh, we'll have an hour practice before the whole thing happens, and so they'll probably give me more of that information during that practice time. And now how many other people are signed up to do this event? I want to say that there's somewhere around 50 slots, um, but, you know, I'm really not educated to answer that. Now, this event is organized by the Special Olympics. Now, do you have any experience with the organization itself or issues that the mentally disabled face? Um, Actually, my experience is limited. I know several... Uh, you know, people with disabilities, and um, I just find that the zest for life that not only the, uh, you know, athletes of the Special Olympics have, but, um, you know, people with disabilities have such a zest for life that um, oftentimes we get so bogged down and we forget that life is supposed to be fun. And so when I found out this was for the Special Olympics, it really did uh, ring very true to my heart because I just think that... um, the athletes are such an inspiration and are a constant reminder for me to remember that life is supposed to be fun. For those of you interested in seeing the event, it will happen on October 1st in downtown Raleigh at the Wachovia Capital Center on Fayetteville Street. Thank you very much, Desiree. I really appreciate your feedback and good luck. All right. Hello, and welcome to This Week in History. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. This week in 1777, our nation's capital was officially moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, the capital until that time, had been captured by the British and the Continental Congress fled to Lancaster. Back in 1843, the tabloid newspaper News of the World was first published. It was at one time the best-selling English newspaper in the world, but recently published its last edition amidst a growing phone hacking scandal. In 1890, Yosemite National Park was established. The park attracts over 3.7 million visitors annually and was one of the prime inspirations for the development of the national park system. In 1908, the first Ford Model T left the factory. Between 1908 and 1927, Ford manufactured 15 million of these cars, which are credited with opening travel to the middle class. In 1916, John D. Rockefeller became the world's first billionaire thanks to his Standard Oil Company. At the time of his death, Rockefeller's personal fortune is estimated to have accounted for 1.53% of the total U.S. economy. In 1927, Babe Ruth set the record for the number of home runs hit in one season with 60 home runs. The record stood strong for 34 years until 1961 when broken by Roger Maris. In 1950, Charles M. Schultz printed the first of nearly 18,000 Peanuts comic strips. 
The comic ran from 1950 to 2000, with distribution in over 2,600 newspapers in 21 languages. In 1958, NASA began operations, replacing the 43-year-old National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. The agency employs over 18,000 people and accounts for 0.6% of the national budget. In 1969, the Concorde, a supersonic commercial airliner, broke the sound barrier for the first time. The plane operated for 27 years until its retirement in 2003. In 1971, Walt Disney World opened its gates. It opened with just Magic Kingdom, but has since grown to include three other amusement parks spread over 30,000 acres. In 1992, Cartoon Network was launched. It first began by broadcasting classic cartoons, and over the course of the 90s, introduced shows such as Dexter's Lab, The Powerpuff Girls, Ed, Ed, and Eddie, and Johnny Bravo. In 1995, O.J. Simpson was acquitted of the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. The trial's verdict was watched live by over half the U.S. population. Making it one of the most watched events in American television history. And now for some birthdays. In 1924, 39th President Jimmy Carter was born. He was president during the Iran hostage crisis and is the only president to have received the Nobel Peace Prize after leaving office. In 1935, actress Julie Andrews, known for her roles in Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music, was born. Sting, the lead singer and bassist of the Police, was born this week in 1951. Musician Meatloaf, famous for his album Bad Out of Hell, was born this week in 1947. In 1969, Gwen Stefani, the lead singer of No Doubt, was born. Gwyneth Paltrow, known for her roles in Shakespeare and Love and Iron Man, as well as her creative child naming skills, was born in 1972. Rapper Lil Wayne was born this week in 1982. Visionary director Tommy Wiseau was born this week, although we're not sure what year. Songwriter and producer Dizzy Rascal, famous for his song "Dance with Me," was born this week in 1985. Well, that's all the knowledge we've got for you this week. I'm Nick, and I'm Dave. Thanks for listening, and keep it historical, Raleigh. Testing, testing. You are listening to Selma's Poetry Corner on Eye on the Triangle. Every person has a story to tell. How they tell it differs. Poets, artistic, unique, and bold individuals who stand up in front of a crowd just to tell their story. And their only hope is that you're listening. So I've met up with local artists so that they may share their stories with you. I'm joined in the studio with Will McInerney. A local spoken word artist who inspires not only me but many other poets as well. So tell me a little about yourself, Will. I'm originally from Chapel Hill. I grew up in this area my whole life. I got involved in political activism from a young age, working with the Empowerment Project, which is a local documentary film organization, which was actually a, a partner with Poetic Portraits of Revolution. I went to Chapel Hill High School, which was good, is but it's high school, you know, so it's same old, same old. And then I actually went to NC State for two years. I was doing electrical engineering, but then I realized it wasn't quite right for me, and that I need to pursue my my goals in art as well as political activism. And so I transferred to UNC, where I now study peace, war, and defense, and should be graduating in December. So, how did you get into the poetry scene? Poetry,、uh, it's really kind of a coincidence. I had a lot of friends,、uh, including Kane Smigo, C.J. Suit, Jake Jacoby, G. Yamazawa, who were heavily involved in the local poetry scene in Chapel Hill and Durham. And I just kind of stumbled upon it. I went to a couple open mics. I knew about it throughout high school, but never really took interest. 
And then one day at NC State in my dorm room, actually, in Sullivan Hall, I was sitting there and my roommate just proposed the idea of writing a poem. And for whatever reason, it triggered and I just started writing. And so I wrote my first poem. I went to the open mic in Chapel Hill. I shared it. They asked me to be on this youth team, which I didn't even know existed, which was at the time the Chapel Hill youth team. And we went to Brave New Voices, which was in D.C. that year. This is 2008. And I was a member of the team. And Brave New Voices is this international youth poetry festival with like 50 teams from all across the country, a couple teams from overseas. And it's this incredible just environment of like activism and youth and power and energy and all synthesized together. And it's a really inspiring, really transformative experience. And for me personally, it made me dedicated to the cause of using poetry to help change myself and the world around me. And from since then, I've been working with Sacrificial Poets, which is the organization that spawned from the Chapel Youth Team and people like CJ Kane, Jake and G, and all of our hard efforts over the past three years. And from then, we've just been rolling hard. We've been doing workshops, competitions, shows for the past three years. So what is your process like when you actually sit down to write poetry? Writing poetry, it's, it's a hard question to answer. Honestly, my writing process is very sporadic. It comes in bursts. There's no really, like, I wish I was disciplined and just sat down and wrote an hour every day. And I've tried that in the past, but it doesn't really work for me. You know, I can force myself to write, but I find that the work that I'm proud of and the work that, that moves me comes randomly honestly it comes at bad times usually like when I have two papers due and it's like 3 a.m and all of a sudden I have a great idea and I want to write this poem and so I spend a good chunk of time working on that rather than the paper so it really comes honestly just when things trigger and like we like to say in Sacrificial Poets that 90% of a poem is thinking you know there's only 10% you're actually writing it. And so you're always constantly creating poems. And there's that very small time where you're actually like translating it onto a piece of tangible paper. And so that for me, that 10% comes randomly. Will not only gave us a look into his poetry writing, but also into his poetry. And this is a poem called A Letter to the People of Egypt. A Letter to the People of Egypt. Your courage is inspiring. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. And if they push back, if they try to divide you, if the police attack with cruelty drooling from their batons like dogs in the summer heat, swallow their tear gas. Cry freedom in the face of brutality and let it fall from your eyes in the march worn Mubarak. The fate of Caesar is upon him that there is not an itch in his back but the dagger of the people's voice taking back the inches this ruler ran away with. We can see his nose growing with each lie America. Must have forgotten to read the warning label because all puppet strings eventually break. And if you dangle them too long, they will be used to hang the people they hold, Mubarak. You can dye the color of your hair to hide the gray area of the past that gave you power in the first place. But we can see your tyrannical roots cracking through the facade. Your promises of change come too late. 
and spill from a poison mouth from which the people would dare not drink you spew lies like your cronies who sprayed protesters bowing in prayer with water hoses to the face old man you cannot wash away their faith their strength somewhere in cairo there are children lining dominoes on the floor they are prophets Building metaphors of revolution, their fingers cross liberty like immigrants at Ellis Island and watch dictators fall into the quicksand of history so light a candle in the tyrant's honor. And blow it out with your screams of rebellion, there are images burned in my head. Amidst a building in flames, misguided looters in the chains of repression, men of all walks locking arms in protest, a human shield surrounding the Museum of Antiquities in the streets of Cairo. They stand for their history. This is their strength. How powerful of a person do you have to be to put your body on the line to protect your lineage? It reminds me of an image I saw a month ago. News outlets only bothered to film the destruction, but after a Coptic church was bombed in Cairo, Muslims formed human shields around the Christians during Sunday worship. That's what it means to pray in peace. How brave do you have to be to dare someone to kill you before you let them touch your brother? These actions speak louder than any poem I will ever write. I should stop asking how brave the Egyptians are, because they have proven themselves time and again America. How brave are you? When will you stand by your ideals? Stop using Egyptians as your bloody thimble, dictators as the needle and the roots of evil as thread to line your pockets so you can hide secrets that scream hypocrisy in your hallowed halls. I should have written this letter to someone else to the generation in this country who forgot what it means to stand for something what will it take to make you march in the streets how many people must die in your name for you to sacrifice your time to the women and men of Egypt my people are embarrassing so all I can tell you is don't give up. Don't ever give up. Sooner or later, we too will rise with you. Remember, we too were once ruled beneath the shadow of a tyrant. We too once stood for democracy. But until then, believe in your strength, your history, your revolution, your ability to decide your own fate. And don't give up. Don't ever give up that was Will McInerney on the Poetry Corner and for I and the Triangle I'm Selma Abdulhai and I hope you've been enlightened as summer turns to autumn and the evenings become brisk the avid gardener knows it's time to start planning a fall garden that's why on today's Gardening Minute, we will be discussing plants that can be grown after the blazing heat of summer has subsided. Some plants don't do well in the middle of the summer. In protest, they bolt and die without yielding. I learned that this summer with my broccoli. I waited months and months for florets, but they never came. Instead, the plant did a lot of nothing, and then it was destroyed by caterpillars. Summer crops usually yield large fruits. Melons, cucumbers, squash, and tomatoes are all summer plants. Fall plants are usually leafier. 
collard greens, leaf lettuces, cabbage, spinach, broccoli, radishes, peas, beans, and onions are all more suited for fall growing. They require less light per day, and they enjoy lower temperatures and continue to yield throughout the whole season. For instance, kale can be pruned back as individual leaves reach maturity. In fact, it's better to prune them because it makes way for new growth. Crops that mature quickly are also excellent choices for this time of year. A crop of radishes can reach maturity in 30 days or less, which makes now the perfect time to start some. As winter approaches, there are a few things you can do to make sure your plants are happy and healthy when the winter blows its icy breath. The easiest weapon you can wield in this battle against the cold is mulch. By spreading mulch around the base of your plants, plants stay warmer. Mulch also discourages weeds from going up around the base of your plants. The most common mulching materials are peat moss, bark, sawdust, or shredded newspapers. Build your mulch layer about two inches around the base of your plants, and you should be good to go. Another cool trick for you to try if you don't have a garden already is to make a planter out of tires. Old tires are in great abundance, and people are always trying to get rid of them. By stacking up several tires and filling the hole you've created with dirt, you can grow anything you want. Tires are also excellent containers for your winter garden because the black rubber absorbs a lot of sunlight, which keeps your plants toasty warm. Fall gardens can be fun and easy ways to keep your plot green year-round, and it doesn't take that much work. With a little planning, you can have tasty greens long after the gray winter begins. And that's today's Gardening Minute. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Chris Chaffee.